This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, August 8th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Public understanding of the opioid crisis gripping various communities needs some clarity. Jeffrey Singer, a physician and senior fellow at the Cato Institute, discusses some of the misconceptions and underappreciated facts about how opioids and addiction function. Where have we seen these uh, dramatic increases in uh, opioid addiction in the United States? Well, the, the big uh, story is that instead of it um, being in the, in the stereotypical inner cities, which is what everyone has come accustomed, become accustomed to, to assuming it is, uh, well, now we're seeing it attack uh, suburban, predominantly white communities, middle class, upper middle class. And of course, uh, we're seeing a lot of it in areas that are economically, chronically depressed uh, like Appalachia, the so-called Rust Belt. Um, and um, the, the thing is that, and, and that's, I think, why I got, it's been gathering so much attention now because um, it's, uh, it's impacting uh, the groups that have, have not been historically marginalized. It's, 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 now it's affecting uh, everybody. Everybody's feeling it. So that's why it's getting so much attention. But uh, the causes are really multifactorial. There's uh, uh, this misconception that's fueling a lot of the policy that basically uh, doctors are overprescribing pain medication to patients who then become addicted. And then when they get cut off or they don't get enough from their doctor, they go into the illegal drug market and become heroin addicts. Um, but that's really not the case. Uh, in fact, and that's the case I'm, point I've been arguing, uh, the Data overwhelmingly shows that the almost uh, the overwhelming majority of patients presenting to emergency rooms with opioid overdoses are not patients. They're uh, they're not patients of doctors. Uh, and the uh, some one recent study showed that only 13 percent of people presenting to emergency rooms uh, with opioid overdoses were actually patients receiving prescriptions from doctors. Um, so, so it's 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 a, a much more complex problem, and the causes are multifactorial. Is that? I mean, should we worry less about doctors prescribing uh, opioids then for people who are you know suffering from legitimate and substantial pain? Absolutely, that we should worry less. Um, what's been there is uh, data to suggest that um, as doctors cut patients off from their opioids, uh, some genuinely, uh, some patients who are generally, genuinely in pain and uh, need something, need, they're desperate for relief. And they also are, you know, uh, maybe chemically dependent. And so they're experiencing the pains of withdrawal in desperation, seek uh, sources in the illicit market. There are plenty of uh, uh, counterfeit opioids being sold on the illicit market, and uh, they get these counterfeit uh, uh, opioids. Many of them are laced with much more powerful opioids like fentanyl, even carfentanyl. Uh, because they're sold on the illegal market rather than the legal market, the dosages and the, pur- uh, the, dose and the, and the purity of it is not really uh, known by a lot of these people. And those are the ones who then go on to overdose. In addition... Um, 
what we're finding is that people, uh, the majority of today's heroin addicts, the data is showing us, unlike in the old days, in the, stere the stereotype old days, the heroin addict basically just started using heroin. Nowadays, uh, the, the heroin addict began as a youngster using uh, Ill illicitly obtained opioids, like in high school, from some friends to get high, uh, whether it's oxycodone or hydrocodone, and uh, gradually moved up to heroin uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, heroin is now roughly one-fifth the price of the street price of opioid, prescription opioids. So it's actually cheaper and easier to obtain. In addition, um, the federal government has encouraged uh, pharmaceutical companies to develop what they call tamper-proof opioids because, uh, for example, if, uh, if a, a patient is given a prescription for oxycodone and somehow that gets what they call diverted, gets you know, stolen or lost and it's then sold on the black market, uh, people who use it for recreational use like to crush it and snort it. So uh, starting in 2010, oxycodone was encouraged to come out with a new tamper-proof product. In 2012, the same thing for oxycontin, so it could not be crushed. Pharmaceutical companies are happy to oblige uh, the FDA when they uh, encourage this because they get a brand-new patent because it's reformulated so they could charge more for it. Meanwhile, um, people who are planning to use it recreationally find workarounds. One thing what we found they do is they boil it since they can't crush it and then they inject it and then they use dirty needles and share dirty needles and you start to see you know, outbreaks of HIV or hepatitis C occur. Um, but a lot of them say, you know, this is just too much work trying to work around the tamper-resistant oxycodone. Why don't I just get some heroin? It's, it's ready to use and it's cheaper. So that's so what we're finding happened. The, the latest data from the CDC showed 33,000 opioid overdose deaths in 2015. That's the most recent information we have. And for the first time ever, the majority of those deaths were from heroin, not from prescription opioids. Also, out of that number of 33,000, it was over 4,000 were from fentanyl, which was nearly double the fentanyl overdose deaths of the previous year. So. Um, that's why when we're directing all our efforts at trying to kind of stop doctors from prescribing pain medicine for their patients, we're really going after the wrong demographic. And, and the majority, the overwhelming majority of doctors, just like in any field, we're, you know, we're good people, we have a professional ethics, uh, and we, we also have liability concerns. So we, we do the right thing. There's always going to be bad apples. But normally, uh, when I'm if I have a patient who I think might be de developing a dependency on a pain uh, prescription, it's my job and responsibility to have a talk with that patient. And uh, if, if the patient realizes that he or she is developing a dependency, then we usually come up with a plan to gradually taper them off and get them, get them off the dependency. On the other hand, if the patient's in denial and unwilling to, to do something about it, um, I should be able to make a decision on my own uh, about how to deal with that. And one possible option is to say, okay, you know what, I'm going to give you another prescription to last you another two weeks, and then you're coming back, and we're going to talk about this again. Uh, because I may decide that if I don't do that, he may go to the black market and access some, you know, black market Percocet that could be laced with 
you know, God knows what and uh, end up killing himself. So these are decisions that I think should be left to the doctor. Let the, like I said, let doctors be doctors. I'm a big uh, proponent of what's called harm reduction, uh, and harm reduction is realistic. It, it, it's, it, it's the, the idea behind harm reduction is if, uh, if I'm not going to get you to, to give up your addiction, at least let me do some things that will make it less harmful to you. So an example of harm reduction is uh, needle, clean needle exchange programs where, you know, they, these exist throughout the world where uh, people are saying, well, at least let, let's let you use a clean needle rather than share a dirty needle with somebody else so you'll get less of a chance of getting hepatitis or HIV. But there have been other harm reduction programs that have been very effective. For example, in Switzerland since 1994, they've had what's called heroin maintenance program. Most people in this country don't know that heroin – is just diacetyl morphine. Also, the generic name is diamorphine. It's been, it, it, it was invented by the Bayer Corporation in the 1890s and given the brand name heroin, which is derived from a German word that has something to do with strength or power because it was a more, about two and a half times more powerful than morphine. Uh, it was just arbitrarily banned in this country in 1924 uh, against the, uh, the, um, advice of the American Medical Association and the Surgeon General. Policymakers thought it was morally corrupting. But it's on the formulary, for example, in the UK and Canada, and it's routinely prescribed as diamorphine uh, for post-operative patients and patients in severe pain. So it's around. Uh, but in this country, it isn't. On the other hand, it's okay legally to prescribe uh, hydromorphone or dilaudid, which is five times more powerful than morphine, and fentanyl, which is 50 times more powerful than morphine. So the idea behind heroin maintenance is uh, a person declares uh, himself or herself a heroin addict, presents each morning to this uh, clinic, and uh, signs in and is given pharmaceutical-grade diamorphine and a clean needle and syringe, injects himself for whatever is needed, then signs out and leaves. There's a, uh, a nurse around supervising but doesn't do the injecting. And uh, they're able to do this, uh, I think, twice a day. And what they've discovered since 1994 in Switzerland is a significant number of these people over time, now that they're not going to spend their whole day trying to find the c contact to get the illegal heroin, uh, they end up getting a job, some get married and have kids, and as they assume a more conventional lifestyle, a significant number of them on their own detox themselves. Um, and uh, about five or six years ago, a group put on the ballot in Switzerland uh, an effort to repeal that program, and the voters of Switzerland voted it down. And so it's continuing very effectively now since 1994. They have a similar program in uh, England, and they just started one in, in uh, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, less than a year ago. So that's what an example of harm reduction. The idea behind that is uh, it's better than clean needle exchange because with clean needle exchange, it's true you have a clean needle, but I still don't know what you're injecting into yourself, whether it's what they say it is, what kind of impurities are in it, whether it's laced. At least this way, you're getting pharmaceutical-grade diamorphine, so it's less dangerous. These are the kind of things policymakers should be thinking about doing. But instead, what they're doing is they're directing all of their focus on trying to get doctors to prescribe less narcotics for their patients who are in pain. And what it's doing is it's making a lot of patients who are seriously in pain uh, suffer 
Um, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's actually fueling the overdose problem. For example, one way of getting these doctors to, to prescribe less is uh, states have adopted what's called a prescription drug monitoring program, or PDMP. Um, that they've been, states have been doing this for about 20 years. The first one ever to do it was California. Now there are 49 states that have done it. And for about at least 10 years, the great majority of states have had these in place. And what this is is uh, you, every prescription uh, healthcare provider writes for a narcotic is monitored. And you get a, a, a report from the, the uh, regulatory board. And in, in my state of Arizona, it's the Board of Pharmacy. So every practitioner gets a quarterly report, and it says, "This is how this is where you rank with res- with comparison to other people in your specialty," and it'll have it broken down. These are how many uh, oxycodone prescriptions you've written this quarter. These are how many hydrocodone prescriptions, uh, etc. Uh, doesn't actually break it down by how many patients you've had. So you could have written a lot more prescriptions because you had a lot more patients, but. That's not in there. It's just a raw number of prescriptions. And then you're categorized as normal or outlier or extreme outlier. And it's told you're told this is just for informational use only, just so you could educate yourself. But, of course, what ends up happening is it, it casts a chilling effect because nobody wants to be labeled. First of all, you know you're being watched. Second of all, you don't want to be labeled an outlier because you don't know where that could lead. So you tend to suddenly cut back. And as you probably recently heard of the, the CDC reporting a few weeks ago that the numbers of prescriptions written by providers has dramatically decreased as a result of this. But w- what's happened to the drug overdose rate? Actually, it's been increasing dramatically so that it's the highest level ever, 33,000 last year, and it's probably going to be higher in our next report. So first of all, these PDMPs are not obviously doing their stated job and they're probably making a lot of patients who uh, need pain medicine suffer. But there's also a recent study just came out from the University of Pennsylvania in May of this year to suggest that not only are they not effective, but they may be causing an increase in the overdose rate because some of these patients who are desperate end up resorting to the illegal market to get their pain medicine. And then, of course, the, the whole cascade occurs where they're introduced to to uh, drugs that are laced and or they move on to heroin because it's easier to, to deal with than the uh, tamper-proof drugs. And that's why we're seeing people who are, you know, uh, white-collar, middle-income, suburban people who have health insurance getting uh, hooked on heroin for that reason. Uh, and another important thing uh, that I'm guilty of this myself, there's a tendency for people to use the word addicted and chemically dependent as the same, as synonyms, and interchangeable. But that's really, there are two distinct disorders, uh, and this is on actually a molecular, biological, cellular level. So uh, to to become chemically dependent, well, that's very common with with opioids, which just means you develop an increasing tolerance, so you need more, a greater and greater dose to uh, to get the desired effect. Uh, and when you don't get it, you get very sick. You develop withdrawal symptoms, similar to you know alcohol withdrawal when you can go into the DTs, for example. So uh, when it comes to opioids, you, you can get really, really violently ill, terrible flu-like symptoms, diarrhea, runny nose, sweats. It's it's very, it's really bad. Um, but uh, you could avoid those withdrawal symptoms by taking another dose of an opioid. That's chemically dependent. 
addicted is a totally different thing. Addicted is when you actually crave the drug, independent of the chemical dependence. You want the drug. You will make decisions that actually do damage to your life, harmful decisions because you're putting the drug first. When you get the drug, you're already beginning to think about the next dose of the drug. And that's a totally different animal. Uh, the data suggests that less than 0.2% of prescription opioid patients, patients who are prescribed opioids by their, by their uh, I'm sorry, less than 1% uh, of prescription opioid patients, patients who are prescribed opioids by their provider, um, become actually addicted. There's um, 0.2% uh, overdose rate, rate from patients who are prescribed opioids by their provider, and that's how they're getting them. So number one, opioids are actually safe when used as directed. And number two, there's a very low addiction rate. Chemical dependencies are totally different things. So if, to give you an example from my own clinical practice, I could have a patient who, who had needed uh, pain medication heavily uh, because, uh, let's say, a trauma. Uh, Congressman Scalise I would expect is received a lot of opioids based on the injury he had. It must have been extremely painful. So they start requiring higher and higher doses to get pain relief, and then they notice that when they don't get their next dose, they get sick. They go into withdrawal. Well, these are patients who are actually happy to be tapered off and detoxed, and when they are, they're glad to be off it. And in many cases, I'll have patients who tell me, um, when I have my scheduled elective surgery, could we not use Percocet because the last time I got uh, chemically dependent on it and it was a really unpleasant experience getting weaned off, is there something else we could use? So that's the, that's the behavior of a chemical dependent patient as opposed to an addict. Now, an addict, on the other hand, is a person who, uh, when he's detoxed and he's no longer chemically dependent, will still crave it and seek it. Uh, and that's why you see uh, such a high recidivism rate in people who go into rehab centers. Um, there's a, it's known, been known for a long time that uh, IV heroin addicts who are detoxed in prison have a much higher overdose rate when they're released from prison because they're addicts. So even though they're detoxed and they're not physically uh, withdrawing from the absence of, of the heroin anymore, they seek it once they get back into their lifestyle and uh, when they get it, they, they take the last, the dose they remember the last time was needed to give them the desired effect. But of course, since they've been detoxed, they're not tolerant anymore. So that's a much stronger dose now than they need. So that's why you'll see them have a tendency to overdose because it, that, that dose is much too stiff for them at that time. Um, so it's similar, uh, you know, alcoholism is a, is a form of addiction. And it, we, we're co comfortable hearing people tell us, you know, uh, I'm an alcoholic. And when you ask when's the last time you took a drink, they say 20 years ago. So they recognize that that doesn't mean they're not an alcoholic, that they're an addict and they have to take steps to keep themselves from, you know, falling off the wagon, as they say. Well, it's the same thing with, with opioids, the exact same thing. So, uh, but we tend to use the words interchangeably. And so when you hear uh, people say, uh, you know, doctors are prescribing opioids for pain patients and then they're getting addicted, then great majority of the time they're not getting addicted. They're getting physically dependent. That's a, a totally different thing. It seems like this puts physicians in an almost impossible situation uh, because they want to serve their patients. They want to alleviate pain. 
And the government uh, incentive uh, appears to be uh, you need to worry less about your patients that are in pain and worry more about compliance with a program that, if, if you're correct, may be driving uh, overdoses and addiction. I agree completely. It does put us all in a bind. Uh, as I said, we're, we're, we want we're, – we're governed by our own uh, professional calling, our professional ethics, and also by liability concerns. So we want to do the right thing and, and one of, the, of our missions is to ease pain and suffering and do no harm. So when you have a person who you know is in pain and even, even if you suspect a lot of their pain now is the pain of withdrawal because they become chemically dependent – um, you'd like to help them, but you're also feeling the, the regulators breathing down your back and you don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to have your license suspended or, or things like that. So it's a, very, it's a dilemma for practitioners because they're torn between doing what they think is right ethically and what they think is safe legally. What is the relationship that you see between um, government programs like Medicaid or Medicare and prescription of opioids? Well, we should do some studies on this. Uh, obviously, uh, as more when, – when people who are using opioids for recreational use uh, have been now added to the Medicaid roles due to the expansion of Medicaid that came about with the Affordable Care Act, that – for some people, there's no question, intuitively at least, it gives them a chance to get to, to doctor shop for at least for a while until maybe a doctor, because of these prescription drug monitoring programs, doctors are aware that they're doctor shopping and then cut them off. But instead of having to buy it illegally on the, on the street, uh, you can go to a doctor, and get worked up for your pain and get a prescription. And since it's Medicaid, you're not paying for it at all. It's not out of pocket. It's being... It's all subsidized. So there's a, a great incentive for, uh, for uh, you know, illicit opioid users, recreational users to at least feign pain and go from doctor to doctor to doctor so that they don't have to pay directly for their opioid. And it would be interesting to see if there's data on that. That, that would make a, a, a really good subject to study because intuitively you would think that's what would happen. Jeffrey Singer is a surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 